0: Welcome to the MindFood Podcast, where we delve into the world of smart thinking content. I'm your host, Michael McHugh, the founder of MindFood. We believe in providing our listeners with the latest and greatest in community, health, beauty and style, home and travel, food and drink, and much more. Join us as we explore fascinating topics, interview experts, and provide insights into living your very best life. This is the MindFood Podcast. In our first episode, we talked to Cameron Douglas, Mind Foods Master Sommelier. Cameron, where in the world are you? Hi, Michael. I am <laughs> in upstate
1: New York, about 20 miles north of Manhattan Island with some family. We're stopping over here on our way to London and getting to know Rye a little bit more.
0: I don't know Rye. So is it one of those very pretty quintessential American towns or is it a little bit more bustling because it's so close to New York?
1: I think it's a little bit like parts of Northern California in that Napa Healdsburg area in terms of architecture, but it's got a history that's well over 100 years old. In fact, the house I'm sitting in is 100 years old, and it's young for the area, but it's home to one of the first congressmen in the United States of America.
0: I love that in America Mm. you can go anywhere and then all of a sudden you know you're staying in or you've just been to some inn or isn't it like it's just so full of history. Yeah absolutely
1: we've done a couple of walks around the area out to the coast and you wouldn't know you were in New York when you're walking through some of the landscape here and looking at the architecture and uh, I didn't dip my toe in the water
0: yet it's spring but you wouldn't You'd think it was still winter, actually. (laughs) (laughs) And tell me, what's the wine scene there like? The wine
1: scene in terms of do they grow grapes here? Uh, No. Uh, But the wine scene in terms of what they sell in restaurants is pretty remarkable they have a very strong Italian influence here so you can go to any restaurant and get some great Italian wine but every single place I have been to so far I always look up the New Zealand wine and of course there's a Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc on the list.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, most of the time from a producer I've never heard of before but that's for a different discussion I think and sort of the classic Italian chiantes and Amaronis and Um, Southern Italian wines are all on those uh, wine lists. I had a fabulous meal tonight and it had an Italian restaurant.
0: How does it happen that a small wine producing country like New Zealand ends up with wine in some of the most obscure, tiny little out of the way restaurants (laughs) around the world?
1: When you're in the position of building a wine program, it's not just The food or the theme of the restaurant anymore because your audience is coming from around the world. And I would say 99 out of 100 people who are dining have a smartphone or have access to technology, and they understand that the world that we live in is getting smaller and larger at the same time. And we are experiencing food and beverages in a a way that we have the ability to research and understand what we're about to experience. And when it comes to a wine program, New Zealand is one of those classic wine producing countries. We may be better known for one variety here in the USA, but I'm hoping, (laughs) fingers crossed, that the drinking public here get used to Chardonnay and Pinot Noir as well as Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand. But, you know, thank you, New Zealand for Sauvignon Blanc is all I can say.
0: Yeah, well, it really has been the beachhead in lots of ways, has not it? It's really just the scratching point for a lot of wine drinkers, I guess, around the world, because there is so much more behind just that. And it's strange as locals you sort of feel, oh, yeah, well, we've been there, done that. We're now on to, you know, the Pinots and everything else that, you know, and all the varietals of that as well.
1: Yeah, I think every wine producer in New Zealand and sommelier from New Zealand is saying, now you've discovered Sauvignon Blanc, please ask the next question. What else have you got?
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we want
1: to be able to say, actually, it's a really good question. I want to show you this and this yeah. and this.
0: But how does a small Italian restaurant in Rye and, you know, out of New York get a New Zealand wine like that? How how does that actually happen?
1: Uh, it's all about the 3 one system of access into the wine market in the USA, And it all comes down to research. The restaurateur, who happened to be a very nice person tonight, needs to be able to see what or learn what their dining public are looking for not only today, but in six months and 12 months and two years from now. And that includes understanding the world of wine. In fact, he mentioned he used to be a chef. and Well, he's still a chef, but he runs the front of house program. He mentioned the desire to go and work in Australia once upon a time so that he could expand his horizons on food and beverage. And I think that's really where it stems from is that Your dreams and aspirations make you explore or open doorways to the idea of exploring food and beverage from around the world. And you suddenly go, what is that food? Where does it come from? What is that variety or the name of that wine? What does it mean? I mean, I said Amarone before and people go, well, what's Amarone? And it's, kind of a place and it's a blended red wine from Northern Italy in the Veneto, but it's got such a wonderful way of saying e marone, yeah. that it makes you want to drink it, you know? Yeah. you know, and then you get like Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand and it doesn't have quite the romantic ring to it, but it does have a place on a wine list and that's really important and it helps you tell the story of food and wine together.
0: I think what has happened though, isn't it? Because it wasn't too far away where I think we all felt there was a bit of a cringe factor about our food and wine, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Was That certainly changed. And hearing that, that that chef actually would love to come and spend time cooking and learning more about the, the you know the regions that we've all grown up with. Do you think that cringe factor has disappeared or is it still there when it comes to our food and wine?
1: I think really it has by and large disappeared. And we have to thank things like the internet and social media for that, but also the people who have a passport and can leave countries like the USA and Italy and mm. um, Northern Europe and actually come and explore the Southern Hemisphere and take those stories back with them. So th- it's taking the storyline home and spreading that information and say, people saying, I had a wonderful time eating this fresh seafood from New Zealand. Mm. I had a, Fabulous time discovering this wine. I didn't know New Zealand produced Chardonnay. And by gosh, I want to buy some now.
0: Mm. It's interesting because I think for so many years when people visited our countries, it was always, oh, they're so friendly there. They're so friendly. And I think that still is the truth. But it's Mm -hmm. interesting now when you travel and you've met people that have traveled to either Australia or New Zealand, they often now do talk about the food and wine and the offering and the points of difference and that they weren't aware of it, you know, the quality of it.
1: I was explaining to um, (laughs) a restaurateur two nights ago how you can harvest seafood from New Zealand and have it on a jumbo jet to California that day and be on the restaurant menu the next night. It is that Mm. quick that you can actually resource. And funnily enough, one of the items that we had um, at our dinner tonight were New Zealand mussels from Sound, So it was like, there they are. It was so quick and um, and, and tasty and fresh and delicious. And I think that's part of the expanding story of New Zealand Mm. and food culture globally is the immediacy and the access to great fresh food beyond what is available locally.
0: Mm, Because it was often the Asian markets first that really tapped into the seafood, particularly in New Zealand, wasn't it? You know, the Japanese, Mm -hmm. you know, Chinese chefs were looking towards, you know, what they could take and harvest. And do you think that's really where it started before, you know, big markets like America looked at us?
1: I think part of that storyline includes New Zealand chefs traveling Mm. and experiencing Northern Hemisphere cuisine and, and learning. But I also think it's, the New Zealand wine industry that we have this exchange program with winemakers and winemakers come from all parts of the world to New Zealand to do a vintage and they have that exchange program where the winemakers then go to similar wineries in the northern hemisphere so they get two vintages a year and they always change food they always take cheese they always take wine and so this information sharing and this idea of how the story of New Zealand wine finds its way into restaurants in the Northern hemisphere. I can't say France in particular, but certainly <laughs> our meat and our seafood finds its way into those countries. And it's, you know, we have to thank our winemakers and our chefs for actually opening up those doorways. And it's part of the storyline for me, how I ended up going into the Northern hemisphere was a love of food that actually took me there.
0: Yeah. So from New York, you head to London, what plans there? So
1: I am the panel chair for the New Zealand entries into the largest wine competition in the world, which is called the Decanter World of Wines. It is primarily a six-day judging of over 18,000 wines, 400 of which I am responsible for to find the best in each class of New Zealand wine. And I'm hopefully judging with a couple of New Zealanders or expat New Zealanders that reside in the UK. And if not, I'll be rubbing shoulders with masters of wine, fellow Masters sommeliers, and we're there to find the best wines in the world.
0: Four hundred wines in six days—is that
1: right? For me, it's actually a six-day appointment, five days of which are four hundred wines.
0: Yeah, from How, New Zealand. How's the headache at the end of five days? Oh, <laughs> well, uh, if, if I
1: can, if I can say, I spit for a living, <laughs> and um, you have to drink a lot of water and take lots of breaks. Yeah. So uh, it's not like here are four hundred wines. Find the best. It's they come in small flights of 10 or 12, and they mix the Sauvignon Blancs with uh, as one flight of 20, and then we get 20 Pinot Noir, and then we go back to Sauvignon Blanc, and then some Chardonnay. So it's all mixed up over those five days. But I also get to paste the award-winning wines from every wine-producing country around the world. And for a sommelier and someone who writes for a magazine, somebody who um, Writes the wine list for the Rod and Gun Lodge Bar programs that is experience
0: that's very hard come by. Mm. Tell me though, you know, those first few wines, I guess your palate's ready. What happens to those wines towards the end of, say, that 12 lineup? How's the palate? Though? Do you think it's still ready to go, or are you a bit, you know, is it a little unfair if you're number 12 in a lineup of 12?
1: <laughs> you know what? Sometimes it can be, but I do have to say, experience is everything. You become a better horse rider every time yeah. you spend more time on a horse or play a game or something like that. Yeah, And I have 30 years experience of wine tasting under my belt. So I find it enjoyable, challenging, rewarding. And I'm, my palate doesn't get tired till about wine 80 on a day.
0: Oh God. Now tell me, <laughs> after 30 years... And you must get sick of people asking you this, but is there a couple of favorites you just love?
1: Yes. I. If I'm cooking dinner at home, I would be happy to open uh, a bottle of Chardonnay and, and drink that while I'm cooking. I think it's a great cooking platform. As far as beverages go, I will always open a bottle of New Zealand Method and I have a few favourites from around the country. I am a huge fan of Riesling, and I think most sommeliers and winemakers are, but we are because we're fascinated by the story that your palate can bridge between a wine and your mind.
0: I love Riesling. I'm on board, and I'm not a wine writer or a sommelier, with chardonnay, though, very popular in the '80s, then it sort of dropped away. Did you hold on? Will you, you know, you know, stood strong with the chardonnay flag waving bunch, or did you let it oh. drop and come back to it?
1: Oh no, I've always been a chardonnay fan, and yeah. it's it, it's one of those everybody has to stop doing this because everybody else is not doing it. I I don't subscribe to that kind of philosophy at all. If I like it. I'll keep drinking it. Yeah. And Chardonnay is one of those varieties that is versatile. It will outlive so many other varieties because it is malleable as grapes go and creates so many different styles. It has a thousand different faces. I was hired along with my wife to present. Um, wines to a group of lawyers solicitors in a hotel in Devonport a number of years ago they said you can show us whatever you like tell us how to taste wine show us everything but everybody here does not like chardonnay don't bring chardonnay and of course to a sommelier that's a, not a n- not a good thing to say so we got a representative from each table up to a tasting of eight wines and we the only question was tell us what you like, identify which wine is the Chardonnay. And they tasted them, and every person said that they loved all of these wines except Chardonnay. But all of the wines were Chardonnay. So (laughs) every single wine they tasted was that variety. So it just proves that you can't put one label on a particular thing and expect it to be the same just because it's got that title.
0: I am learning that with Chardonnay, though. Like, I unfortunately, I'm a, the mm, I don't really like Chardonnay, but I have to say, over the last couple of years, every Chardonnay I have drunk without realising it, it has been Chardonnay. I've loved, whether it's on its own or with food. And I think, you know, isn't that interesting? I will naturally gravitate to a Riesling or a Pinot Noir, but yeah, Chardonnay is not something I put my hand up for. But every time I've tried it, I've loved it. Mm.
1: Chardonnay of the past uh, or most recent past has been over-oaked. It's it's almost like being oak juice using Chardonnay as a platform. And what winemakers have discovered, especially in countries like New Zealand and Australia, is that if you grow great fruit, you don't need that much oak. And so the wines are becoming less oaky, less oaky, less oaky, more mineral, more complex. And I think as somebody, as a publisher, as somebody that is an artist in your own right, that you look for the detail in something mm. and therefore that story comes alive and for wine it comes alive on the palate yeah. and as a sommelier we we create those links we bridge those gaps between people and wine and if the detail is there then we know we're on to uh, a winning story yeah. we just need you to be open to the idea
0: how different is it for you when you know, some vintages are just absolutely fantastic. It's just a dream in a glass. And then the following year, it's a bit of a dud vintage. How disappointing is that for you, you know, as a sommelier, as a wine judge?
1: Well, there is a degree of disappointment in it, because when we know that as a winelist writer, if I know I'm dealing with a particular producer, I have very high expectations, because I use that producer over and over again. And when a a challenging vintage comes along, then we have to re-examine what they're producing. Are they using their brand and massaging that brand into a higher quality of product than it should be? Or is it just as good? So it doesn't matter who the producer is, As somebody who deals with wine on a daily basis. It's not the packaging and it's not the brand. It's the contents. Mm. It's what's inside the cover of that book that is most important to me because my job is to create the best experience for our customers. And when the brand does deliver in a great vintage, it's a sigh of relief. But it's like, yes, you can reach those heights. I also think conversely that a wine company and small producers in australasia will say no when they're not dealing with a good vintage and they produce less of higher end wines and more of the moderately priced wines will say because that's a reflection of them understanding the conditions they're dealing with
0: yeah what what are some years that have had spectacular vintages like for our listeners what should they be looking for in terms of some years that you know this is just a cracker of a year in terms of a vintage
1: Let's use New Zealanders as an example. The odd numbers seem to work really well. 07 was, well, 05, 07, 09. 11 wasn't so great. 13, 15, 17 for some. 19 was spectacular. 21 was almost perfect, practically perfect. Wow. The Yeah, the even numbers, 2008, it depends what region you're in, 2010, Bit of a write-off 2012, not so great. 14, I think, is as good as 2021. So 14 oh, really? was fabulous. Yeah. 2018 in Otago, brilliant. In South Island in general, 2018 was pretty good. Hawkes Bay, spectacular. And 2020 was the the mark of something new, the new era of New Zealand wine, where we've crossed this threshold of by an age that is old enough to produce quality at smaller volumes, It basically it's set the platform and the staging for where can we go to from here. Yeah. And when the Northern Hemisphere is suffering so much from weather conditions, poor weather, it's actually shining a light on what we can do in the Southern Hemisphere. And I mean the whole of the Southern Hemisphere, not yeah. just New Zealand.
0: Yeah. Any indication of what 2023 is going to look like as a vintage?
1: Uh, yes, for New Zealand. Uh, and note the pause in my <laughs> in, in answering this in answering this question. Look, you know we've suffered some pretty severe weather conditions. That yeah. that is a fact. And too much rain is not a good thing for vineyards. So throughout the whole country, we've been challenged by too much of one thing, which is water. Too much humidity at the wrong time causes disease pressure. And of course, the big cyclone that wreaked havoc on certain subregions of New Zealand meant that there is too much disease pressure for them. It's not a good vintage. In saying that there will be producers who have harvested early, I think sparkling wine will be fine. I think Riesling would probably actually be fine because botrytis and Riesling love each other anyway. Yeah, yeah. But we're going to see less high-quality Pinot Noir, less high-quality Chardonnay, less high-quality Cabernet. And if I was to coin a phrase in to sort of capstone the vintage of 2023
0: by Rosé. Oh, really? Okay.
1: Yeah, it's going to be a great vintage for Rosé. It's just that there's going to be a lot of it around. Yeah. I have to be honest about that. But in saying that as well, I know that there'll be some gems amongst
0: Mm. all of those varieties you heard it here first listeners by rosé 2023 <laughs> <laughs> but listen the horrific weather you know Hawke's Bay particularly really got hammered what does what's going to happen there in terms of that wine region it's
1: a good question actually 15% of the vineyards in Hawke's Bay have suffered too much that the recovery for them if at all will be at least 5 years
0: Because they have to
1: dig these vineyards out. Hopefully there will be some vineyards surviving. But for a bunch of them, this is not good news. The remaining 85% will actually produce something that's not too bad. Growing grapes is farming. And farming is subject to the conditions of the soil, the climate, and the environment during the ripening and harvesting season. And that's of any crop at all. And It's about mitigating the potential dangers. It's about recovery from the impact of weather conditions and grabbing what you can when you can and producing a quality product from it. And the history with Hawke's Bay in particular, Gisborne um, and Northland, who suffered just as much, is that they, they pull up their pants, tighten their belts, tie up their shoelaces, and they get on with it. Mm. So, you know, despite what I said about rosé and it's not that great, you will find some quality product out of Hawke's Bay because winemakers know what they're doing. They're the doctors of winemaking.
0: yeah. (laughs) And, you know, there's something about, as you just said, just getting on with it and creating the best out of a bad situation.
1: Mm. Oh, absolutely. And, And I think if I can mention the way in which the greater wine industry got together to help out their fellow winemakers in and around New Zealand was phenomenal. I was sitting sitting at a table in Marlborough and the winemakers talked about nothing but how they can help their fellow community in Hawke's Bay and Gisborne and so on. We had that earthquake on that evening there was a bit of a shake at that time and we almost thought yeah this is New Zealand this is what happens but there are people who rocked up with wheelbarrows and spades. There are, I've been buying Hawke's Bay wine to help them out. There's been wine evenings at restaurants. There's been wine dinners at restaurants just to help them out because that's the best way we can help them is just to support them in any way we can. You know, buy a T-shirt, buy a cap, buy a bottle of wine. It will help
0: them. Yeah, good advice. Now, listen, recently we sent you on a cruise. Had you ever been on a cruise before?
1: Yes, I fell in love with cruising on the open sea probably about nine or 10 years ago and got the opportunity to be a guest speaker on another cruise line. So, any opportunity to jump on anything that's larger than, you know, a dinghy, uh, count me in. <laughs> and we had the most wonderful experience because there were expectations that were met immediately. We love sailing around New Zealand or cruising around New Zealand anyway. And it was an opportunity to experience a different kind of service with the Viking cruise line.
0: Yeah. So what was a Viking cruise around New Zealand actually like in terms of from a wine lover?
1: As a wine lover, what we look for is an opportunity to try something that we hadn't tried before or in a while, and to what um, degree of research has that company, or in this case Cruise Line, gone to, to populate their wine program with wines that will interest professionals like myself, but did they achieve that? And through their food and wine experience as well, through the food and beverage programs, because great wine on its own is great wine. Great food on its own is great food. But when you try and marry those two things together, you have to have the right formula. And I think that they achieved that very successfully with biking. But I think one of the keys also to that success is the people on the boat staff. Mm. They they were out of this world so humble, so professional. And very interested in what we thought about the wine, what we thought about the food. It wasn't just delivery of something. They were involved in the experience.
0: Were they knowledgeable? Like, did they have the background sort of notes and, you know, they could tell the story about, you know, the wine and food and where it came from?
1: Yeah, absolutely. They, part of their job is to take ownership of the role that they're in and they're required to research the country that they are visiting. They're required to understand the wines that they're probably going to be pouring the most from the country that they're visiting. But also some of the restaurants on board were Italian themed, we'll say. And so the wines there were Italian leaning. They had to know Italy, the subregions, regions the varieties and what the taste of those products were like. And they did that very successfully.
0: Mm. Your latest trip throughout New Zealand, what were you doing? I know we've sent you around New Zealand a lot. But what were you doing on your current trip?
1: We jumped on board in Auckland, and the idea was to really experience the food and beverage programme first, but also what is the service programme like for Viking in New Zealand? So I had to pay attention to what they had to offer at every restaurant, at every bar, you know. Poor me for having to try every beverage, every cocktail, every menu item. But somebody has to take that on board. <laughs> and having been trained as a chef at the beginning of my um, hospitality career, I needed to pay attention to what was going on. Fortunately, I got to have a tour of the kitchen behind the scenes. And, it, you know, it was like a surgery. It was so clean. I discovered that there was an internal escalator in the ship. I never knew that existed. To get the staff from one level to the next that was pretty cool but it's also the collective package of being in a cabin getting used to the pitching and rolling of a ship in the open sea watching mm. the, the the bird life understanding how difficult it is to actually manage a ship at sea not only the food and beverage program but just the you know the sailing and the controls blows my mind how Difficult, it must be to control something like that. We had to experience the spa. <laughs> <laughs> so at the front of the, <laughs> there's a full Norwegian spa at the front of the ship in the bow. And it's full of spa pools and saunas and ice rooms. And that itself was amazing. It, you didn't even know you were at sea, to be honest. And I learned where the origin of um, the Bluetooth symbol comes from. It's actually Viking in origin. And that I have Viking heritage. Oh, there you go. About myself. Yeah. Wow. There's something in me. Part of my DNA is Viking.
0: Wow. Yeah. I'll never look at you the same way again, uh, Cameron. <laughs> Did you discover any new restaurants? You know, because often they stop into some pretty um, interesting towns and cities as they go around the country. Did you find any new places you didn't know about that offered great food and wine? To be
1: honest, it was like revisiting... Old haunts that I liked, and do they still exist? Like, you know, Teresa Bar in Hawke's Bay, Mr. D's in Hawke's Bay. And I didn't need to go to Hobbiton because I've done that several times before. But I think what I did discover in pulling into some of these ports again is the degree to which industry operates the commodity, the moving of commodities from port. To other parts of the world is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. it's just happens all of the time.
0: Yeah. Cameron, thanks mm. for that. So you've just had dinner at a beautiful Italian restaurant and ride just out of New York. What's your favorite thing you've to eat recently while you've been away? I think it
1: is local seafood like lobster, lobster roll.
0: <laughs> yeah. <Yum>. Can't <laughs> get rid of that.
1: Up in the Northeast coast. Yeah. But I'm, I'm off to Manhattan tomorrow to meet up with one of the few people who is a professional sommelier who, um, through uh, a tragedy earlier on in his life, put him in a wheelchair. But he owns a wine store and he owns a restaurant and he's a bit of a celebrity. And I'm going to meet him because it's the the idea of networking within food and beverage cultures is very important for a, a professional like me
0: what i do well have a wonderful yeah. trip i'm sure veg you'll come home it's been great having you on the show
1: <laughs> yeah about eight kilos heavier but um, very you know i love coming back it's great great to see you and talk with you
0: thanks for tuning in to the mind food podcast we hope you found this episode informative and entertaining if you enjoyed this content, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating and review. Also be sure to check out MindFood Magazine, Facebook, Instagram and Pinterest for even more smart thinking content. In our next episode, we speak to Lisa Pyle, Vice President of Region 7C's Asia Pacific. Until next time, this is Michael McHugh from MindFood.